You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, y'all, I'm going to do something different today. If that's all right with you, I'm going to stand because admittedly I'm a little fidgety, um, but this is a little different. Um, but I do want to say, isn't it nice to have, um, it's nice to have Aaron with us, just adding to, right? It's just nice, and it's been great having Orange Brian back there, and, and uh, that's, been, that's been good. <laughs> seriously, I've been grateful, seriously, for, his, uh, for Brian's presence as well. All right, so uh, two things. If you have your Uversion app, and if you don't have it, I really want to encourage you to, uh, to get it, um, but you would, it would be helpful today because I have some pictures for you on here that uh, you can see. So, um, you know, if you don't want to be FOMO and, have, you know, fear of missing out, then I encourage you to get the Uversion app uh, so you can download that and then you can go to the events and then you can see, um, you can see what you need to see. So the scripture that we're going to look at is going to be uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 20 on this Trinity Sunday. So Paul is halfway through his letter and he's talked about being saved by the grace of God and being God's workmanship for good works. Uh, And then he talks about how that has created one humanity out of two humanities, right? There was Jew and Gentile, and those are the broad sort of categories of belonging in the ancient Near Eastern world. And Paul says, all those broad categories now come into secondary place. First place is now that we are one people. And here's what he says, and it's it's, it's what you could call a Trinitarian text. It's Ephesians 2, 18 to 20. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So there you have the Trinity. Uh, For through him, Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the cornerstone. I love this text for a lot of reasons, but one is that it's a Trinitarian text. It's one of those fewer times where you see Paul mention the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And what I think Paul is getting at in this entire section of Scripture is that we are loved by a triune God who is this eternal community of three distinct persons, of diverse participation in faithful, self-giving love and perfect unity. So there are three simple truths that I want to take from this beautiful truth. Uh, You could even say these are more implications. One, you were made in the image of our triune God And so you are made for relationship. Every person, every human being is made for relationship because we are made in the image of God. But to be made in the image of God is to be made in the image of the triune God. Not just God as in one, but but this triune God who is eternal community. Who is eternal community. We are made in the image of God. We are wired for relationship. So here's my encouragement, brothers and sisters. Don't allow sin to create isolation and cause you to go at life alone. Our society misguidedly prioritizes the individual over community. 
Don't give in to the temptation to elevate yourself to the point of isolating yourself. The triune God as eternal community and communion opens outward to invite you and me into his life. And anyone is welcome. All right, the second thing. As one made in the image of our triune God, you and I are made for self-giving participation. The Father gives Himself, the Son gives Himself, and the Spirit gives Himself, all for our good. All for our good. And as a signpost, as a marker to the Lordship of Jesus. And as the Father gives us the Son, who gives us the Spirit, who gives us God's presence, God gives us to the world. And He summons us to join Him in the beautiful dance of mutual submission to participate in God's story of redemption. Let me say that again. As the Father gives us the Son, and the Son gives us the Spirit, and the Spirit gives us God's presence, God then gives us to the world as His household, as His church. And He summons us to join Him in the beautiful dance of mutual submission to participate in God's redemptive story. You have a distinct place within God's purposes and among His people. Everybody has a role to play. Trust in His Spirit's leading. As God bears witness to the Lordship of Christ working within you and around you and out ahead of you in the lives of others. It's a beautiful thing to know that every single person has a significant place in the purposes of God's story. I think this is much better than Jeremiah 29. Right, Because this is the triune God who is community, who opens himself outward to us and welcomes us in community because we're made for community, then invites us to self-giving love. But that's the thing, self-giving love. We have to be willing to give of ourselves and we can't, we can't participate in the story of God's redemption if we are holding on to ourselves, holding on to our time and our finances and our, and our emotions and our beliefs. We give those. We must be willing to give those away as we are committed to participate in the work of God in the world, in the work of God in our neighborhoods, and in our city, in our workplaces, in our classrooms. All right, so third implication. As one made in the image of our triune God, you and I are made for love. We are made for love. We yearn to be known and loved as we are and to feel secure in this love. Maybe the reason we have FOMO, <laughs> we have this fear of missing out, is because deep down we want to be known, we want to be included, because it's a part of who we are. This yearning is so deep that we discover over and again that there is no other kind of love that can satisfy us. Our God, who is eternal communion and love, knows you best and loves you most. And he does so without caution or restraint. And his love is anchored in the covenant he made to his people, sealed with the blood of Christ. God's love is not fickle, frail, or fragile. It is faithful. And when God makes a covenant, he keeps it. God's faithful love can liberate you and me from ourselves, from our ideologies, from the need to have to win. 
But he calls us into, remember, to participate into that story, which is going to cost us something. But maybe because God knows participating in his story and standing for justice, for example, standing for what is right and true and good, being willing to name the sins of the world concretely and our own sin too and our complicity to it, maybe God knows that doing that is so hard that we need to know that we are secure in his love. And here's what I'm trying to say. Because God is Trinity, because He's Trinity and He operates out of Trinity, out of Father, Son, and Spirit and diverse participation of self-giving love as eternal communion that is everlasting and that is faithful and there's no division in perfect unity because of God's Trinitarian self. Because of Him, we can find security. We can trust that He keeps His words even when it doesn't seem that way. His love is anchored in the covenant He made. And only His faithful love can liberate us into the kind of life His Spirit longs for us to experience. Trust in God's love and listen to King Jesus' voice as He whispers, Abide in my love. Follow me. Because here's what it is. Our triune God wants to reform us. The problem is we are being invited into a different kind of formation powered by the reign of sin and death. I want to say that again. Oh, how can I stand? I shouldn't have stood. I can't stand still, Sherry. Like The problem of God's desire to reform us is that we are being invited into a different kind of formation powered by the reign of sin and death and the principalities and powers. Both formations are in conflict, man. But we get to choose which formation we submit to. So Linda and Bob got married in October. Thanksgiving rolls around and Linda gets excited about cooking ham with her ham recipe that had been passed on for generations from her great-grandmother all the way down. So Linda gets into the kitchen and she prepares her special glaze with brown sugar. She invites Bob in there and Bob helps and he grabs the raisins and the cloves and a hint of allspice and red pepper and half a cup of whiskey and puts all those ingredients into a bowl and whisks it around together and then warms the glaze on the stove. And then Linda cuts off the end of the ham and tosses it out and places the remaining ham into the roaster pan and she pours the glaze over it until it puddles just a bit underneath the ham and the ham is roasted at 350 degrees for two and a half hours and then it'll be ready to eat. Are you hungry yet? So Bob, being in the kitchen, helping Linda prepare the ham, was watching her as she cut the end of the ham off and throw it away. Naturally, he got curious and Asked, honey, why, why, do you, why do you cut part of the ham off and, and, and throw it away? It looks perfectly fit to eat. And Linda replied, I really don't know. My mother did it that way, so that's the way I do it. And Bob was bothered by this answer, and so he this is good, this is good, good piece of ham, a waste of food. So he asked Linda if she'd call her mom and ask why the ham has to be cut off, like why the end has to be cut off the ham before it gets thrown into the oven. So Linda finishes up and she calls her mom and she says, Mom, you know, why do you always cut the end of the ham off and throw it away before putting it into the oven? And her mom says, Honey, I, I, I'm not really sure. That's the way my mom always did it. 
So I've always done it that way too. And over the years, I've thrown away a lot of ham ends. That's just how it is. But you know what? Why don't, why don't you call your grandma and ask the reason? So Linda hung up and called her grandma to ask her why. She always cut the end of the ham off and throw it away. And her grandmother thought about it for a minute and finally answered, well, I don't have any idea why you cut off the end of the ham and throw it away. And I certainly don't know why your mother cuts off the ham and throws it away. But I cut off the ham because it wouldn't fit in my roasting pan in any other way. See, some of the ideas, stay with me, some of the ideas and practices that we learn when we are growing up are very helpful to us. You know, like make sure your shoes are tied before you go outside to play. Look both ways before you cross the street. But the truth is that as we grow up, all the things we are taught that we come to believe are the right way to do things is because we don't know any other way to do them. And if our parents were doing it, or our neighborhood was doing it, or our city was doing it, then that must be the way we're supposed to do it too. Those who teach us these things generally do not mean harm. They're doing what they've always done. The ideas and behaviors are passed on from generation to generation. And we're formed by these ideas and behaviors, whether we know it or not. We're formed by them in our subconscious. We watch people we love do it and we follow their behavior. And we do it too. And we don't know it until somebody asks us the question why and then we realize we can't answer it. And then we start thinking through the ideas and behaviors that we've inherited and the practices that we've taken on in our lives and the habits we've formed. And here's the thing. Our understanding of what is right and wrong, good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable, is formed by these things. Most of the time, it is formed unconsciously and lives in our subconscious, meaning we really don't know why. We just do it anyway, like Linda and her ham. Now, I grew up in South Georgia. Those who know me know this. Now, I didn't grow up in Virginia. So I'm not sure how it worked in Virginia, but I can tell you in South Georgia and Alabama, we have this thing called manners. And when you said yes to a, a, a grown woman, you didn't say yes. You said what? Yes, ma'am. And if you said no, no, ma'am. And if it was a grown man, an older man, you said yes, sir, and no, Sir. Now, one time I was in this conversation with some older men and this coworker of mine, and this coworker of mine was not from Georgia. Matter of fact, this coworker of mine was not even from the U.S. This coworker was from somewhere outside of the U.S. And um, my coworker had great kids, beautiful kids, wonderful kids, and was raising the kids. And um, but the kids were raised under his ideas and practices and behaviors, and in his home. Um, ma'am and sir wasn't a part of the deal. But I'll never forget, we're in this meeting, and, and the older brother who was born and raised in the South had just had enough of the lack of ma'am and sir. And out of nowhere, this, this what was sweet, sweet older man, but this sweet older man just had enough, and he blew up, and he, he started talking about how rude 
My coworkers' kids were. He didn't even say like, he just said they, they, were, they lacked manners. And it was this standard of right and wrong. And they were poorly raising these kids. Like literally my friend's parenting was called in the question. And when it was done, we were just out of all obliterated by this moment. And there was no getting around it. Once it was done, I sat there with my co-worker. I was like, what happened? He said, that's just not how I was raised. That is not how I was raised. That's not what our culture does. And so I just don't raise my kids that way. But what had happened was it created conflict. Now, who was right? Ha! Is that even the right question? Manners. We inherit them. People like Aaron, who wasn't born and raised in the South, who talks funny, right? Like it's a boot, not a bolt, right? Like, 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 like you get like that's that's different. It's different, right? Like Aaron, were you raised to do ma'am and sir and right? Like just we're not a part of the cultural deal. Aaron's rude. See, like that's what we that's what we think. Are you are you picking up what I'm putting down, y'all? Like y'all, is this making sense? All right. So so here's another thing. Like I want you to think about pink for a minute. Think about pink. Hoyt, it was Hoyt's birthday. Uh, yesterday or the day before, I sent you a message, Hoyt. I did say happy birthday to him. Anyway, it was Hoyt's birthday. He is now 32 years old. And, and as you know, Hoyt has pink pants. I have pink pants. Hoyt and I actually lead the pink pants ministry in this church. You didn't know that, but that we, we have one. Um, it's just Hoyt and I. Let's think about pink for a minute. Pink, pink is a gender signifier for girls. That's what the color pink is, right? Like if, a, if somebody's baby is a girl, you buy pink stuff. If it's a boy, you buy what? Blue, right? Like so, blue becomes a gender signifier of for boys. Now, you, if you don't have U version, you can't see this. But if you do have U version, I want you to go and scroll down where that picture I got from Smithsonian Magazine. I want you to see that child in the in the pleated dress, right? Like it's a pleated dress with the long hair. You know who that is? If you look closely, you know who that that long haired child is in the pleated dress. That's um, you ready? That's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. That's FDR, sitting primly on a stool in his white skirt spread smoothly over his lap with his hands clasping a hat trimmed with a marabou feather, shoulder-length hair, and those patent leather party shoes complete the ensemble. See, some of us might find this look Strange today, but here's my point. In 1884, this was social convention, meaning this was how you dress kiddos. When FDR was photographed at age two and a half, social convention of 1884 dictated that boys wear dresses until age six or seven, also the first time of their haircut. Franklin's outfit was considered gender neutral. If you scroll down, you'll see another picture of a young boy in 1870 dressed in a dress with a pleated skirt with high-button baby boots. Again, social convention. That's the cultural norm. FDR's mama and this young boy's mama and daddy, everybody was formed by this social convention. It was bigger than, it's bigger than any one person. Those social conventions are bigger than us and they form us. It's how things go, right? It's why the color pink is a girl's color. But here's the thing. Pink used not to be a girl's color. 
but you'd never know that. See, because I've always wondered, like, whoever decided that pink was a girl's color, did somebody get on national television in the Oval Office and say, I hereby declare as President of the United States of colors, as the, as the cabinet leader of the color wheel of the USA, that pink is hereby deemed a girl's color. Nobody did that. Matter of fact, if you scroll down and you'll see uh, this paper doll that is called Paper Doll Bobby, this 1920s picture. Aaron's going to get some Paper Doll Bobbies for everybody. Um, this 1920 picture, the clothing options of pink, green, and yellow outfits, pastels when they came into the, into the fashion world were considered all the rage. And if you were to know, in June of 1918, an article from the trade publication Earnshaw's Infants Department, which is now Earnshaw's Magazine, a magazine dedicated to children's fashion, look it up. They said this in their 1918 article, the generally accepted rule is pink for boys and blue for girls. The reason is that pink, being a more decided and stronger color, is more suitable for the boy, while blue which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. But yet, raise your hand in this room, which, by the way, I want to make sure the church knows there's one, two, three, there's five people here. So it's like, but raise your hand. Like, were you not raised to believe at some point that the gender, the gender norm, the social convention, was that pink was for girls? Raise your hand, right? I mean, when I started wearing pink pants in this church, people were like, Nice pink pants, Fred. Oh, it was like, finally, I've got me a pair. I'm going to wear them too. It was in 1927 that the question around gender-appropriate colors for boys and girls became a significant issue, and then so the arguments ensued, and Time Magazine in 27 issued a color palette after interviewing all the different department stores as to whether or not pink was boys and blue was girls or whether blue was boys and pink was girls. And a cultural war ensued. And eventually what ended up happening is in the 1940s, department stores just made the decision for society. Are you feeling me on that? Seriously, y'all catching me on that? Department stores made the decision for the whole of society that pink would be a girl's color. And you were formed. So here's the thing what I'm trying to say. Mine and your interpretation of pink was decided by Macy's. <gasps> so for all of us who say, I make my own decisions. <laughs> Why is it? <laughs> with, a, with, a, with a southern drawl and a deep voice. Because you know that's how everybody talks. Like, I make my own decisions. I decide what is right and wrong for me. Nobody forms me. Then, yo, where'd you get your idea of the color pink? Macy's. Right? When did you decide boys couldn't wear dresses? And when did you decide that boys wearing dresses wasn't right? Because FDR's mama would argue with you. So, like, it's, I mean, it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's like just one more example. It's like escalators, right? Like, who stood up one day and said, I hereby declare as the cabinet leader of all escalators that if you are not going to walk on the escalator and let the escalator do the walking for you, you must stand on the right side. If you stand on the left side, where the walkers want to come, we will hereby run you over or say bad things behind your back. 
is social convention, y'all. We are formed by these things whether we realize it or not. We become a part of what we are around, whether it's moral or immoral. It's what sociologists have called, you ready? Here's the $10 term for the day. The social construction of reality. It's Macy's deciding with all the other department stores that pink is a girl's color. And now when boys wear pink, we make fun of boys. And that's the danger. You may think it's innocent. You may think it's innocent. None of these things are ever really innocent. You know why they're never really innocent? Because the reign of sin and death is always at work. It's always at work. And so what I felt like I wanted to do as I start to wrap up this morning is I want to remind us that we do not need to be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. In other words, we do become a part of what we are around, whether it is moral or immoral. So what do we do? Well, we have to create a way to do it. We have to understand. We need to be mindful of, of how this works. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to offer you a little example this morning. I want to try and offer you a biblical worldview, kind of like a colander, right? Kind of like, kind of like a, like a, like a, what is this called? Strainer. Yeah. See, because you know I'm always in the kitchen and stuff. Um, like this strainer, or like a colander, something. I want to build something for you. And here's the thing. Here's the thing I want to build for you. Here's all I got to do. I can lay my Bible down and be like, "Yo, that's the thing." Here's how we strain out and filter through. This, the malforming systems of the world. How do we start differentiating between God's Trinitarian formation of our souls and the reign of sin and death's formation of our souls? Because we already know, we don't always know. We don't always know what we think we know. We don't always know what we believe we know. We were raised to believe it this way, and we sometimes have never questioned this conventional norms. Sidebar, did you know that there's a movement to change escalator etiquette? Like there's literally a movement of people who are trying to say we need to walk on the right side and that's just it and so we find ourselves in these battles but we find ourselves in these battles not because these things exist but because we are formed by the things that exist and we don't know why but i believe the bible tells us why so here's what i want to do this is not bourbon it is not whiskey just want to Throw that out there for those who thought it was last time. You have seen this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again. Because this time, y'all, I have little babies. These are the people. All right, these are the people. Kaya, you recognize these? These are all of Kaya's, by the way. Kaya's little baby. She's embarrassed now. Here's what I want to do. This cup represents the reign of sin and death. Stay with me. And we are born into the world, made in the triune image of God. And we are thrust into the world of the reign of sin and death. This is how we are. This is not a sin condition of our own soul. This is a sin condition of the social norms of the world. The world is under the reign of sin and death. That is what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5. It is why Jesus called the devil the ruler of this age or the ruler of this world. It is why John in 1 John 5 said, or 1 John 3 I think said, or maybe it is 5, that the, we all know that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. 
we are born into the reign of sin and death, where the reign of sin and death is at work in the world and the principalities and powers are creating the divisions and dehumanizing bodies because they have different skin colors, dehumanizing genders because they are different genders, the uplifting others, putting one against another, creating division between the two, murder and violence and betrayals and pain and name-calling and scapegoating and all of the death-dealing realities white supremacy, uh, anti-blackness, misogyny, all of the things that are culturally concrete realities, abusive husbands, abusive wives, uh, abusive parents, abandoned children, not caring about children in the womb, not caring about them out of the womb, not caring about them in the tomb, putting people in tombs, all of these things, products of the reign of sin and death. And we are born into that world. And without Christ, that is what we've got. And we're going to buy into the things that go on in the reign of sin and death, whether we consciously believe them or not. We're going to believe it because it's the world we know. Are you with me, y'all? We believe it because it's the world we know. Until Jesus breaks in and says, there is another world that is breaking in that changes everything you know. Everything you thought you knew may not be right at all. Women may not only be equal, but there's equity. All of the span of a human life is precious in the eyes of God. Enemies are precious in the eyes of God. The beauty of color and gender and socioeconomic and, and, and like social places and ethnicities are beautiful in the eyes of God. And all are welcomed with equal seats at the table. And oh, by the way, systems that, wear, that press people down in poverty, that's not beautiful in the eyes of God. Having to scrounge for food when I have more than I need in my closet, that's not beautiful in the eyes of God. And Jesus comes in and says, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers in a world of violence. Give to those without expectation of return. Stand for what is right and good and just in the world. And he goes and he is put to a cross. And he is risen. And he reigns and he says, now my kingdom has broken in and all are welcomed into it. And the kingdom of God becomes the foundation upon which those who pledge their allegiance to Jesus as king are supposed to live. And we now have that reign of sin and death on us like this little baby here. It's still on us. And we're learning how to wipe it off of us as we live in the kingdom of God. We're learning day by day by day that, ooh, that was the reign of sin and death. That feeling toward the other person is the reign of sin and death at work in my life. Ooh, my belief that I'm right and they're wrong is actually the work of the reign of sin and death in my life. Oh, me being wrong and them being right is the, is the work of the reign of sin and death in my life. Me devaluing the other person because of whatever is the reign of sin and death in my life. Me trying to split allegiances to other nation states and other ideologies is the reign of sin and death in my life. We still have it on us. 
And we're trying to get it off of us. And the Trinitarian God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, says, come into me, come into my life, and I will show you, I will show you how to live in the kingdom of God where you can see more clearly. And some of us will choose to live into the kingdom of God, and some of us will not. Some of us would do like this baby here and have one foot in the reign of sin and death and try to have one foot in the kingdom of God and, man, it's just not going to work. And then what we find is as we start living in light of the kingdom of God, we start discovering how we've been formed unconsciously and subconsciously by the reign of sin and death in the world. And so we join in a community of people who are trying to learn that too. And we hold each other to our confession. Even if we have to fight and fuss, strain and struggle, we do it because we're the household of God and we are all humble to the reality that each one of us have been formed by systems we didn't understand but we have still been formed by them and we have to repent. And we have to submit to the new formation of the kingdom of God. Whether it is racism, genderism, the dehumanizing of another because of sexual orientation, whether it is the dehumanizing of one because they're not from around here. It does not matter what Capitol Hill says. It matters only what Calvary's Hill has created because the triune God is inviting all of us to be liberated from the things that have formed us so adversely where we don't even realize we have one foot in the reign of sin and death and one foot in the kingdom of God, but we aren't humble enough to admit that as a possibility. Brother and sister, we must wake up and fold yourself into the Trinity who is Father, Son, and Spirit of eternal communion, of eternal love, of self-giving, love be enfolded into his life so that you and I may be liberated from the reign of sin and death that is still getting its muck and mess on us but we have to let go Holy Spirit of God teach us liberate us that we might let go So Paul says, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we are no longer foreigners or strangers. See, we have a home now. It's the kingdom of God. But fellow citizens with the saints, we're not alone. And members of God's household, we are at home 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus the king himself as the cornerstone, but he is our Lord. And the Christian life, brother and sister, is learning how to live in light of the reign of the kingdom of God to which we have been given and we have been ushered in and learning how not to let the reign of sin and death continue to get stuck onto our lives and form us. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.